A reading from Paul's letter to the Romans. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if in fact we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, but for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the household came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, no, for in gathering the weeds you would uproot the wheat among them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then the crowds left and he went into the house and the disciples approached him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. 
the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we come to you and ask that you would meet us, uh, that you would help us, uh, because we want to be people who respond to evil differently. We want to be people who respond to evil with good and not evil. And so we ask that you would help us um, together as we sit with this, with this parable that Jesus has given us. And it's in your good name we ask. Amen. Friends, last Sunday we began our summer series uh, through the parables that Jesus told. And we started by saying this, that parables are the murals of the Bible. Right? Murals, they capture your attention. They draw you in. And not just one time, but every time that you happen to be passing by. You stop, you observe, and you maybe learn something new. They draw you in to consider your place and your contribution to a place differently. Parables act in a similar way. You sit with these stories. You stop. You observe. Over and over again, you come back to them. They are large. They entertain. And they are told in such a way that requires you to give up your defenses. Because even if you've understood something, there's still more that you could learn. And so Jesus puts before us another parable. Because just one story is not enough to capture all the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of what God is doing in our world. And this story in particular rubs against one of our strongest impulses. And frankly, it's an impulse that can keep us from seeing the truth and the beauty of what God is doing. And that impulse is our judgment. And this parable is about judgment. And it's not just about final judgment. We will get to that. But it's also about our present impulse to judge, to separate, to sort things out. I've been sitting with this parable for this past week, and there's been two realities that have sort of made this difficult for me to sit with. The one is this, Alan Jacobs, who is a a humanities professor at Baylor University. Uh, He recently wrote a book called How to Think, um, a, a field guide for a world at odds. Jacobs argues that the sin of our day, and he's speaking about the West generally and the US in particular here, but the sin of our day is not lust. The sin of our day is not gluttony, right? Our insatiable desire to be, to be fed or to be entertained. No, the sin of our day is wrath. We are angry people. <laughs> and especially with those who we disagree with, we don't know how to interact with one another other than with hatred. That's the one reality that's been on my mind as I've sat with this parable. And the other is this, hopelessness. Uh, This week we received news of two celebrities who took their lives. 
two people who had wealth, success, family and friends, and yet hopelessness was what they struggled with. When we see the evil in our world and even within ourselves, hopelessness can seem like the only reality that makes sense or the only way to to deal with the reality as we see it. And can I just say, if you are somebody who is struggling with hopelessness, know that you're not alone, that you are loved, and that God loves you. And if you know somebody who is struggling with hopelessness, get near them. Actually, come down to where they are because it is very difficult to reach out when you are hopeless. So that is just a sort of a call to all of us to be aware. But but wrath and hopelessness or you could say hatred and hopelessness. These are the realities that I think, think make this parable especially difficult for us to pull towards our lives. How do we embody something differently in the face of the evils that we see? How do we embody the notion of God's kingdom that is present, that is limitless with grace, that comes in the midst of a broken world? Let's consider this parable of the weeds. Good seed was sowed in a field. A field that had been dug up, cultivated, ready to receive this seed. So that a harvest of wheat might be produced. That amazing bread might be made. That would be enjoyed with the creamiest, slightly salty butter. That would be shared around a dinner table with friends and family. The good seed is sowed. But then an enemy comes during the night, and maybe it's a neighbor who used to be a friend. But then you decided to remove the stump along your uh, property line, and it took a big hole into the fence. And now their backyard is susceptible to creatures. Their field could be in trouble. Whoever it is, or however this enemy relationship was formed, this newfound enemy comes and sows seed. And this seed is not bad, or is bad, not just because it's not wheat, but because it looks like wheat, and it will confuse the workers. Months go by, life sprouts up, but so does the stuff that will not make food, but just looks like the real thing. And the farmer says, let them be. Let them both grow together. Teens, this is why you read your Bible. I wish I had this story as a teen because I pulled so many weeds and this would have been the perfect story to come back with. (laughs) But then again, most of us don't have much of a plot of land, so maybe you're weeding from like a three-by-eight box, so you don't share my pain. Um, We like to sort things out, don't we? And maybe for some of this, you know, this is a personality thing. For some of us that are more type A, we like to organize. We like lists. We like to color coordinate our closet. Everything in our house must have a spot. We like order. But this is also a human thing. We like to know what is what. Think about the first things you learn as a child. The names of animals. That's a dog. That's a cat. That's a bird. That's a plane. We like to know what is what. There's order to the universe. And it's not just a personality thing, it's a human thing. But when it comes to good and evil, we are not the best at sorting that out. And we have never been good at that. 
Think of the story of Adam and Eve. The first chapters of the Bible where we're setting up this story, this paradise, if you will. Life on earth as it was meant to be. And God put a tree in the garden. You can eat of everything, all of the trees, but not this tree. Not the forbidden tree. And you know the rest of the story. They ate of the tree. And the problem of humanity, as the Bible describes it, that runs throughout the course of our history, is the belief that we can judge better than God. That we know better what is good. That we know better what is truth, what is beauty. That we know better what love looks like. We were never good at sorting it out. Not just because of sin, but because we are limited. We see through a mirror dimly, as the Apostle Paul puts it. We know only in part. We were not meant to be the final arbiter. And so often when we live and to take up this act of judge, we do it in evil ways. Have you heard about the attacking peacocks this past week? I'm serious. This is happening in Surrey, British Columbia, British Columbia, which is a town just outside of Vancouver. And these peacocks have lived in this neighborhood because somebody brought them there for like the past, this, for the past decade. And peacocks can be really annoying. They can be really loud. They can be shrill. And so one guy was fed up and did something about it. He went to the, to the tree in the neighborhood that's housing all of these peacocks, that's housing their nests, and he cut it down. No permission from the city, no permission from the neighborhood association. He cut the tree down. And the neighbors are pissed. Because now, the peacocks are not just annoying and shrill, but they're ruining their cars. Why are they doing this? With their homes gone now, they are out in the wild, so to speak, away from their tribe when they come upon the cars, they see their image. They see their reflection. And they perceive it as a threat. So they peck. They attack. So much so to the point that they're destroying cars. Are we any different when we try to sort out good and evil? We have thousands of years of history, of humanity, of mankind perceiving the other as a threat. And in reality... That threat is our own image. This is what it looks like when we try to do God's job. So much of the Christian life is about letting God be God. Letting him do his job. Because when we take God's job, we actually can't can't need him. We can't worship him. We can't need his forgiveness. And when we take God's job, we can't let others need him as well. The master says, let them both grow. Because by pulling the weeds, even with the best intentions, it can harm the wheat. Let them both grow. So what does this look like? What does it look like to let them both grow? Because we live in an age where we are very aware of the evil that is around. It's all over our news feeds. We're inundated with it. Racial tension, political turmoil abuse, and we live with it in our homes, unresolved conflict, just sort of this, the simmering unresolved conflict, or we live with it even within ourselves. Abusive, or I should say destructive patterns of behavior 
that even exists within ourselves. So what does this look like? Because to let them grow does not mean that we do nothing. That uh, it doesn't mean that you don't stop abuse when you see it or that you just keep letting the addictive patterns that you have, just feed it, just let it go. But it is to say that because God is still God, we can approach evil in a different way. We can embody something differently in the face of evil. And so I want us to think about that through two ways. And the first way is this. And I want to start us by doing something I was told never to do in pastor school, and that's to refer to the original languages. But here this word, let, a fete, it is the same word, it is a familiar word to the disciples because it's the same word that he used in the Lord's Prayer when he taught them on the Sermon on the Mount just a few weeks prior. It's the word for forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The very thing we need, we are called to extend. And the story of God's kingdom includes the story of forgiveness. Forgiveness that holds on to both realities of God's justice and his mercy. That it is not unjust for him to forgive. And the life of Jesus is this massive mural, if I could say it that way, that God still forgives in the face of humanity's worst. On the cross, Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And the message of forgiveness is what Jesus tasks his disciples with after the resurrection. We need forgiveness. Every human being needs the forgiveness of God, and we are called to embody forgiveness. But this is what this means, and this is what it looks like between one another. Because forgiveness is not not acknowledging the wrong. It's not letting people walk all over you. It's not being a doormat. No, it's freeing yourself from the wrong that has been done. It's saying, I forgive, and so it, I am not attached to what has been done to me. And I'm actually offering you a chance to not attach yourself to what you've done, not to be defined by it. Forgiveness holds out the possibility of restoration. And that's the first thing I want us to hold on to as we think about this approach to evil. The second thing, I think the, the servants in this story actually get something right. They actually recognize their roles pretty well. And what do they do? They ask questions. Questions, I believe, get us towards a posture of what to do in the face of evil. Two weeks ago, The Atlantic put out an article uh, entitled, The Hidden Costs of Losing Your City's Newspaper. I was most intrigued for nostalgia's sake. I grew up reading The Atlanta Journal-Constitution almost every morning. But it also had this, uh, the main photo of the article was from 2009, when the Philadelphia Inquirer was uh, forced to go into bankruptcy. And the struggle of local newspapers is, is, is pretty obvious and um, inevitable with the shift of readership moving to major online publications, uh, with uh, people getting their news from social media, uh, with also Craigslist, right? The revenues that would be brought in from newspapers for classifieds ads. Why pay a newspaper when you can just post online for free? This article highlights a few major effects of losing a local paper. But one of them struck me in particular, and it's the first domino that falls. And it's this. Cities where newspapers closed up shop 
saw increases in government costs as a result of the lack of scrutiny over these local deals. So the government could spend as it wished, not critically thinking about whom it affects or the long-term effects. So the journalists, the ones who were tasked with sort of covering all the angles, if you will, who would often be the voice of citizens speaking out for the vulnerable or the forgotten, those people were no longer in the room following up on these decisions. I wonder if this might be an image of what it looks like to listen to Jesus here. Because think about it, questions, they reveal, they bring light on something that might otherwise stay in the dark. Questions, they invite a response, maybe even repentance. Questions develop holy curiosity in us, believing and trusting that the kingdom may be bigger than our grasp of it. Trusting that the good seed has been sown, that the kingdom is present, and that God's grace really is everywhere, even in the midst of our broken world. And this holy curiosity, it's, it's the way of compassion, and it's, it's, I want to say it's not easy. I mean, it's, um, it doesn't ignore truth. It enters in. It struggles. It wrestles. But what might that look like? What might this curiosity look like with those closest to you? What might this look like even for you when you Look at your own life. What might it look like to let God be God and trust that he is reconciling all things in Christ? When we take up this posture of forgiveness and curiosity, we will inevitably get into the weeds. And it's way more difficult than actually pulling them up. I want to finish up by looking at Jesus' allegorical interpretation of this parable. Because it's interesting to note the emphasis that he puts on this. The story that's you, that he tells the crowds in verses uh, 24 to 30, he's emphasizing this present posture in the face of evil. Let them both grow. And yet Jesus shifts to an end time, this harvest time, and it goes almost beyond, uh, if I could say it that way, the original telling, because, and almost becoming a second story. Now his audience is just the disciples the ones who should be in the weeds the most. Much of Jesus' explanation here alludes to the book of Daniel. The son of men echoes chapter 7, where we read that one like a son of man is given the right to judge and rule over even the monsters who have oppressed God's people. Then you have the fiery furnace, which echoes chapter 3. Daniel's friends right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The righteous shining like the sun reminds us of Daniel 12, a prediction of the resurrected glory of God's people. Daniel was a favorite book of the day to try and understand when this time would come, that when would God finally give victory. And it's a book that is apocalyptic. Jesus' explanation is apocalyptic. What does apocalyptic literature do? It is intense. It is loud. It is big. But it's not given to scare us into being good boys and good girls. It's given to communicate a hope-filled idea. A hope-filled idea that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. That the dominant 
powers fade and that God is still around. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whether how far it is into the weeds, do you see that God is not left? Do you see that God will sort it out? That evil will not be the end? In Jesus Christ, God has not abandoned our world to its worst. He has taken the evil, and the power of evil has been broken, and in his resurrection, a new day has dawned. And that new day is here. And so we wait as people who know that the sun is risen, but know that we wait for that light to come in its fullness at midday. So may God give us the ears to hear and the hearts to know that his kingdom is present in our midst with abundant grace. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we struggle um, to, to, to see you and to believe you and to trust you. We struggle uh, because we ourselves uh, struggle with the things uh, that harm the things that harm ourselves and that harm others. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see your spirit at work, your spirit at work in our world, bringing renewal, bringing uh, forgiveness and restoration and even the places that seem most impossible. Would we trust that, that again, that is the story that lives underneath us and hold us up? We ask in your name. Amen.